Let me lead us in prayer um, as we look at these verses together. Father, you know that we long to be a church that would love, reach, build and send. And so we pray that you would help us to see, particularly this morning, how these how these verses, how this passage will help us to do that. We pray that you might soften our hearts, that we might hear your voice, and that you would speak clearly, because we're not very good at listening to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Often, um, Often when push comes to shove for the believer, we easily slide into thinking that the reality of our believing, or of being disciples, kind of comes from the daily habits that we engage with, the activities, the things that we do, we think, make us Christians. And those things are often very important and really good, and I'm not saying we shouldn't do them, and our faith is to be lived out, it is to be active, it is to have an impact upon what we do. But actually, of course, we're not defined by what we do, but rather by whom we follow. Christianity is fundamentally about a person. People who follow a person, it's not primarily a set of religious practices or moral choices or philosophical ideas. It's it's devotion to Jesus. It's following Jesus. And you see that here in the climax of our passage for this morning, this first passage in this autumn series going through Mark's Gospel. Um, This is where the opening section ends up. Let me read, um, I'll read from 14 to 20 again actually on page 1002. Because you see at at the start of his account of Jesus, Mark gives us models to follow who themselves follow Christ. Verse 14, after John, John the Baptist, was put in prison, that is, this is a new season, it's a a new day, a new beginning, says Mark. Jesus went into Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said, the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come follow me, Jesus said, and I'll make send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. When he'd gone a little further, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat, preparing their nets, and without delay he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. We'll come back to them shortly, but the point is Mark wants us to see the right response to make to Jesus, the response that he wants from us as we read this gospel, are to be a people who follow him. It's not simply mental assent or being persuaded or convinced or having a few things that we believe, but rather that we follow. Simply put, that we are his disciples. And you know this, of course, if you're here as a believer this morning, as a follower of Jesus. And yet this morning, as, and as home groups launch, relaunch this week, we'll have a bit more of a think about what this means for us as a church together. And indeed, what this means for us as a church in this place. Although next week we'll be back down at school. But how does this building that the Lord has provided for us over nearly seven years, how might that shape the way that we follow Jesus? 
the opportunities and witness that we might have in this place. And indeed, as we call others to be followers of Jesus. It's worth saying, though, from our perspective, discipleship, following Jesus, is not simply blind obedience. It is not just a leap into the dark. Mark has given us a number of reasons already to follow Jesus. He shows us that Jesus is unique in all kinds of ways. He is God's unique answer to the problems of this world. And so what we'll do this morning, we'll spend a couple of reasons thinking why we should, as a church, be a people who follow Jesus. And then two reasons or two things of aspects of what it means that we might follow him. Okay, so firstly, two reasons why we should follow Jesus. The first one is that he can uniquely sort our problem. Why follow him? Because only he can sort the big problem that we have. You will know something of the the catastrophic consequences of living in a world that's walked out on God. I take it you will know and feel something of that. You turn your back on the God of life and in comes death. You turn your back on the God who brings you joy and in comes misery, ultimately. You turn your back on the God who rules through his loving word and in comes confusion and discord. And we are a people who have turned our backs on God. And so all those things are here aplenty. And you'll know that in the small-scale little things of your life, the the awkwardness and conversations and discord in the office, the colleagues who you really rather were not your colleagues, the bickering in your house, the broken relationships in your family, the words you wish you could take back, the, the way that the people that you love the most are the people that you hurt the most. The, the skeletons in your closet that you keep guarded away and locked. And we know it big scale as well, don't we? The big picture, the fear that comes as we watch the 10 o'clock news, genuinely. Global enemies, the political and economic uncertainty and chaos, a lack of trust in leadership around the world, countries that are at perpetual war with each other, with weapons that could destroy us all. And you see, those things at root, well, they are the fruit of us walking out on God, choosing to try and go it alone, choosing to try and do things in our own strength. They are symptoms of the greater disease, the disease of self-sufficiency and pride and removing God from the equation. Which is why from the outset in Mark's gospel, he will keep going on about the need for repentance. It's there on the lips of John the Baptist in verse 4. And so, do you see, he appears in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. It's there as well, actually, as Jesus begins to preach himself. Verse 15, the time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Now, John has come as one who was preparing the way for Jesus, and so it's appropriate that the first thing he does is indeed the first thing that Jesus does, which is the call for repentance. Turning back to the Lord, returning to him again. Do you see, the arrival of Jesus is more than just papering over the cracks, just a lick of paint, trying to pretend everything is right again. 
No, it's the message that we need. It's a, a complete rebuilding of the house. It's a reworking of the foundations. It's starting from scratch, turning back to God again. And the people then, as they heard this message, I take it they were in a state of spiritual exile at this point. Do you remember that God had promised them a land? They were in that land, but they were ruled over by the Romans. And the glory of God had not returned with them to the land. We never get it explicitly mentioned until perhaps in John's Gospel in chapter 1, as Jesus turns up. So the people were a people, but not really their own people. And so step one has to be repentance. Step one always needs to be repentance for us. The tendency of our hearts is like the car with the tracking off. It just veers away and veers away. And we're proud. And we trust in self rather than trusting our God. Maybe you're here and um, maybe you wouldn't call yourself a Christian or you're not quite sure, but this is ticking all the boxes for you because you knew that church was all about people trying to make you feel guilty and talking about repentance and God making some kind of power play over us if he's there, wanting to squash us and put us in our place. Yet the thing that's striking in Mark's gospel is that the people of God are not immune from God's frustration either. This is not the church wagging its judgmental finger over everyone else. And we know being in this kind of an area that people think that of us. But actually this is God speaking to his people too, his people who ought to have known better. And yet they need to repent. You actually get that in verse 2 and 3. Um, as the gospel begins, Mark quotes from the Old Testament, speaking about John the Baptist, and he, he does a peculiar thing. He, he combines two prophecies together. So verse 2, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. And so the two signposts, the two prophecies, are both talking of someone that God would send to prepare the paths for him. <clears throat> But if you dig around where they come from, and you see it in the footnotes, Malachi 3 verse 1 is the first bit, and Isaiah 40 verse 3 is the second. And if you go back and track through, you'll see Malachi is not a particularly heartwarming passage. This is God promising that he would come and judge his own people. And yet Isaiah, the second half, Isaiah is much more comforting. It's about God coming to rescue his people. In the midst of darkness and difficulties, he brings hope and a future and relief. And so do you see, as Mark starts it all off, what's Jesus come to do? He's going to come and judge, and he's going to come and rescue. Actually, that's really helpful. As you read through Mark's gospel, you see that being worked out. He'll come to judge, so you will see big arguments that Jesus will have with the Jewish religious bigwigs. You will see it in chapter 7 when he talks of sin in our own hearts. You'll see it in chapter 11 when he goes to the temple. Or, or indeed from 2 verse 6 onwards, things get a bit sticky with the religious leaders. Or he comes to rescue, secondly. Again, you see that again and again and again through Mark's Gospel, particularly the next few weeks. We'll see people being healed. We'll see demons being thrown out. We'll see sins being forgiven. 
Or you'll see nearly three chapters when he talks about the cross. That is the big rescue in Mark's gospel. That is God's king coming to put a broken world back together again. Coming to deal with sin and rebellion against God once and for all. To deal with the consequences of our sin and rebellion. He comes to judge and he'll come to rescue. And and so why should we follow him? Because... Well, because uniquely he comes to sort out our problem. And our problem is, as John begins to preach in verse 4, the need for forgiveness of sins. Our broken relationship with God is at the heart of the issue. And Jesus comes to sort that. And the implication for us then is not particularly flattering. He is not saying, guys, you're basically okay. He is saying you need a whole change of direction in your life. I wonder where this bites for you at the moment. I don't know how your heart is. I don't know how you are finding following Jesus, or even if you would say you do follow Jesus. I don't know how your summer has been and the way that we kind of drift when holidays come in and routines go out and It may be this is a great time for you just to press pause in a bit and to repent and to turn back to the Lord. In one sense, it's always a good time because we always drift. It's a daily thing and we need to do it. But in another, it might be this season, this moment is a great time to press pause. It may even be this is the first time ever. Perhaps the first time today you see something of your need to turn back to God. And this is that moment. Come chat to me afterwards if that's you. But you see, it's from that place of humility and repentance and death to self that the Lord then begins to bring life. That's why he starts with repentance. Sometimes people think Jesus is a bit like, he's a bit like aircon. You know, he's nice to have on a hot day. He's, it's an excellent addition. It's not vital, He's a lifestyle choice, something to add in, which is kind of cool. But Mark's point is that he's not aircon. He is the whole new engine. He is everything, and that is why we need to begin with repentance. He will uniquely sort the problems. Second reason to follow him. And I think this is a slightly new one for me from Mark's Gospel, something I've been wrestling with slightly over the last few weeks, and that is that he he seems to uniquely identify with us. What do I mean by that? Often when you read Mark or you read books on Mark, the big thing that comes is that Jesus comes with power and authority, and that is totally right. Here is God's king on the scene. And you will see that in weeks to come, we will see... Later in chapter 1, that Jesus overcomes evil in chapter... uh, And then sickness, and then sin in chapter 2, and nature in chapter 4, and death in chapter 5. And that is completely right. God's king does come with power and authority. But the problem can be, at times, we sort of picture him as being a little bit distant. He's a distant, all-powerful king over there somewhere, sat on his throne and keeping his people at arm's length and not getting his hands too dirty. But the slight rethinking I've had to do to keep, is to keep that truth of power and authority, the fact that he overcomes, the fact that he untangles the outworking of a broken and sinful world. That is right. 
But then to add into that, this idea that he is not standoffish, he is not at arm's length, he, he intimately identifies with his people. We're a people who are loved. He uses his power for our good. You might say he is fully God, but he is fully man. You get it ever so clearly with the baptism. Verse 9, verse 10 and 11. It's funny, people often get hung up on why was Jesus baptised. Why did he need to be baptised? I mean, he, he can't have needed washing and forgiveness. I mean, if he was sinful, then his sacrifice doesn't ultimately work. So what's going on? And I think the key thing is, as Jesus is baptised, firstly, he identifies with us. But actually, secondly as well, it's a slight aside, we then can identify who he is at that baptismal moment. I'll show you what I mean. Firstly, he identifies with us, and that in his full humanity, as, as one person put it, this was the first act of his ministry. This was the first step in his redemptive plan. Get this, he who had no sin took his place among those who had no righteousness. He who was without sin submitted to a baptism for sinners. In this act, the saviour of the world took his place among the sinners of the world. Do you see, he's not far off or aloof or distant or standoffish. In his humanity, he identifies with us. He, he lowers himself. He, he gets in alongside us. But as well as identifying with us, just secondly and briefly, you do get this amazing glimpse of the Trinitarian God from whom all good things come. Verse 10, just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove and a voice, the Father's voice came from heaven, you're my son whom I love, with you I'm well pleased. It's great that the youth are in on a day like today. Do you see, Father, Son, and Spirit, a glimpse, we identify who Jesus really is as he identifies with us through his baptism. The second way you see this identification, and I think why Mark kicks off with this, is as Jesus heads out into the wilderness, it feels like a slightly weird tangent, doesn't it? We think, okay, baptism, great. We've just heard from the Father, verse 11. Uh, he loves the Son. Now let's get on with it. And there's kind of a pause. At once the Spirit sent him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals and angels attended him. It's, it's as if Mark wants us to recall the people of God, you remember, traveling through the wilderness for 40 years on their way to the land God had promised. And they, they grumbled and they rebelled and they moaned and they failed. But Jesus gets it right. I think, I think as well, it's as if we're meant to recall Adam and Eve in the garden with the wild animals and where they got it wrong and doubted and distrusted God. Jesus gets it right. Here is the Son of God that we've been waiting for. Here is the one who identifies with his people. Here he is. Here is God come close. And he loved us. He identifies with us. We'll see in a week by week he has compassion and he has patience on his people. He will heal Simon's mother-in-law. 
He will restore the leper with a touch. He will raise the paralysed man and bring him life. He will sit and eat with tax collectors and untouchables. He will bring wholeness to people on the Sabbath. And the list will go on and on and on. But the point is, Jesus is not distant. He's not out there somewhere. But he comes and he identifies and brings compassion. He comes close. And we would love that idea to be at the heart of us as a church and indeed of this building in which we currently sit. A place where we genuinely identify with people. Where we're not seen to be aloof and distant and standoffish, but a genuine place of real compassion and kindness where people will come and they will, they will know that they are loved Wouldn't that be amazing? I'm aware that we're at at odds with much of the world around us, but that doesn't mean that doesn't mean that we keep them at arm's length. It doesn't mean in the context of those relationships we won't disagree with people, we won't challenge people, we won't engage with people as Jesus did, but it will be a place where people are surprised by the welcome and warmth they receive, by the compassion and kindness that they see in us as we have received it from Christ. Why follow Jesus? Well, because he can uniquely sort our problem, because he's uniquely identified with us. Now, just a couple of things to say on how we follow him uh, from these verses. The first one to say is that he has a unique message And that message is good news. That phrase rings out through these verses. I don't know if you spotted it as Ruth read for us. Of of course, the gospel begins with that fact. Mark on the front foot, verse 1, the beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. And the story transitions. And from John to Jesus, we see Jesus speaks good news, verse 14. He goes into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. Or verse 15, the time has come, he said, the kingdom of God has come near, repent and believe the good news. It's extraordinary. He was the most humble man who ever lived. And yet he makes the most enormous claims about himself as he begins to speak. This is not him bragging. This is not him humble bragging. This is just fact. Jesus says, I am here, the king has come, the Messiah has arrived. And so with the king coming, so the kingdom comes. More on that in weeks to come. But for now, just note, this is a message of good news that we bring. It's a verbal message, there are words involved. We speak the message. The danger, maybe increasingly, can be that we are reluctant to speak We've already said we want to be like Jesus and not be standoffish and distant and aloof and show compassion and kindness and love, but we want this to be a place of welcome. But that's not that's not instead of words. It's alongside and with and where open doors allow words. Praying for clarity and courage, praying we might be willing to speak. Praying we might be willing to pray that we might speak. Loving people enough to speak to them of Christ. Of this one who has come close. This one to whom we need to repent. And it is good, good news. 
I wonder sometimes if we even need to be reconvinced of that. Again, the danger in our times, and it's a real danger, is that we can be duped into thinking that this message is not good news. God is painted as a tyrant. We're not simply kind of naive and a bit quaint. People who go to church on a Sunday still. But, but we're bigots. We're judgmental. We're restrictive. It's dangerous and increasingly at odds with the world around us. And yet, and yet Jesus comes saying this is good news. It's interesting, if you look back at church history, or indeed you look around the world today, we've always been at odds with what's going on around us because humanity has walked out on God and said God's message has always been countercultural and different. It's always been jarring. Maybe our challenge is to show people that whatever the cost of following Jesus as king, he is worth it. It is good news. Whatever it might mean giving up, actually he is infinitely more. He is better than following yourself as king. The final aspect, just to bring out quickly, is that he demands a unique response so back to where we began. Jesus doesn't just come and announce these things. He doesn't just bring news for people to hear. And it is news. Now he begins with repentance. And then very quickly it transitions to service. Isn't that striking? They've barely ticked the box before they're put to work. A commitment to Jesus always goes together with a commitment to his mission. Some people try and follow Jesus without, without serving him. Some try and serve him without following him. And yet, as, as Mark gives us this model for what discipleship looks like, as he calls these first disciples, Jesus calls them to become fishers of men, fishing for people, gathering others into this kingdom under this king. See their response in 18, immediately, at once they left their nets and they followed him. Verse 19, again, at once they left their nets. Without delay, he calls them when they come. That's not a call for us to abandon our responsibilities, to drop everything. The point he's making that if we follow him, if we're one who follows Jesus, then we have new priorities. We have a new allegiance, a new loyalty, a new commitment. We must get this right. We don't add him into all our other commitments. He doesn't kind of, we don't fit him in somewhere. I know, Jesus, you can have Sunday mornings again. Um, I'll have the rest of the week. No, he is calling us to put him first before, before our work, before our family, before our security, before our friends, before our old allegiances and priorities, etc., etc., etc. Modern Road, when it comes to following Jesus, anything else that was once first needs to become a very distant second in comparison. And that is, of course, really challenging. Some of you will associate with this, but imagine you're trying to sell a house. Imagine you've overslept, you've missed the alarm, and there's a viewing in 10 minutes, literally 10 minutes. And you wake up, and you glance across at the clock, and you panic, 
And you look around the place and you think, oh boy. You grab the wheelbarrow, you scoop up all the mess you can find and you you shove it into the spare room, you shut the door. Piles and piles and piles of mess. You shut the door and there's a ring at the doorbell. The estate agent is here with a lovely family looking to buy a house. And you whisper to the estate agent, don't go in the spare room. And you know the whole house is available to them. Except the spare room. You you don't go in there. Don't touch it. It doesn't work, does it? It doesn't work with estate agents as people try and buy your house. And it doesn't work with Jesus. Because he calls us to follow him. He calls us to yield everything to him. And he asks for nothing less and he is worthy of nothing less. One writer puts it like this. If we had an iota of common sense, we would say, Jesus, I need you in every area. Please come on in. But we hold back. And we don't follow him fully. We try to fit him in with everything else. Jesus, you can have Sunday mornings again, but the rest of the week, is that okay for me? Morton Road, what would it be like for us to be a church full of disciples who, who follow like Simon and Andrew and James and John, who immediately, at once, straight away, no ifs or buts, no putting it off, follow him with all that they are, open every door, bring out all the junk, let him deal with it. Again, we would love for this place to increasingly be a place where people hear that voice of Jesus calling them to, to follow him whether for the first time or the thousandth time. That's it. I'm excited by the extraordinary opportunity we have here. As a church together, to think and to pray and to dream about what might be in this place. What might that look like? One of the things that's so beautiful about Jesus is he knows us far better than we do. And he is far more committed to our joy than we are. He has so much more wisdom than we do. He he calls us to follow him and trust him, and we need to listen. Striking as Mark unfolds, we will hear his voice in all kinds of strange ways. It's, It's the same voice that will speak of a cross that is awaiting for him in Jerusalem. It's the same voice that will speak of a ransom that will be paid for people like you and people like me. It's the same voice that will speak of an empty grave. It's the same voice that will say, your sins are forgiven. He is more committed to our joy than even we are. We can trust him. It's the same voice that speaks to us now and he says, come follow me. Come and give me everything. I don't know what that's going to mean for us as a church in the months ahead or the years ahead. It will mean opening up all the doors, following him with all that we are, giving him everything, letting him in, following him wholeheartedly. It will mean putting him first. Maybe it will mean leaving stuff behind. It will mean trusting him even in the uncertainties and the unknowns of what's around the next corner and Boilers and builders and funds and all that sort of stuff. But you know, but because we know his voice, 
And because we can trust his voice. Because he is one who can uniquely sort our problem. Because he is one who uniquely identifies with his people. Because he comes with good news. So we can be a people who are committed to following him with everything. Let me pray for us now. Lord Jesus, we thank you for that voice that calls us to follow you. Thank you that you are more committed to our true joy than even we are. Thank you that we can trust you. Thank you that you are prepared to pour out your life that we might have sins forgiven. And so we pray that you would help us to follow you now. Help us to be individuals, help us to be a church even, who who love to follow you because we love you. And we pray that you would give us wisdom. We pray that you would give us thoughts and ideas and open doors as we think about this place where we are now and how that fits into being a church of people who follow you. Lord, we would love for you to be mightily at work. Not just in the years to come, but the decades and dare we even pray the centuries. Help us please to keep following Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.